Uh, our dog's name is Ren. We call him Rennie most of the time. Oh, nice. What kind of dog is Rennie? He is a dachshund mix. He's like 27 pounds, so he kind of looks like a giant dachshund. That's Andy Scott. You've definitely heard her name before in the credits of every episode. She's my partner in crime, the editor who's made sure everything you've listened to is fresh. We rescued him. Um, he was two years old, and he was, we like to say that he was a Trump baby. We got him after Trump was elected because I, I needed something cute and sweet that, like, didn't know about a lot of bad things in this world. When Andy got Rennie, she was living in Brooklyn, and getting the dog meant joining what she calls dog culture. But not just any dog culture, a very specific artisanal Brooklyn variety of dog culture. In our local park, Fort Green Park, there was this, like, incredible culture in the mornings before 9 a.m., this dog culture. And basically, the city has this rule um, that before 9 a.m., dogs can be off-leash in the city parks. So basically, like, if you want your dog to get the kind of exercise and socialization that happens when dogs can be off-leash, then, like, you go to the park before 9 a.m. So each morning in Fort Greene Park, upwards of 50 to 100 dogs run free. And their people, well, they, you know, chit-chat. And at first I was like, I don't know if I could do this. Like, I'm not, like, super morning person. Can I talk? Can I have conversation? But basically, over the course of, like, the two years that we were part of this culture, um, you know, you see the same people every day, and you make these incredible friendships. And you walk around, and, you know, some days it's like a therapy session. You're talking about your day. You're talking about your life. Something's happened, and you're, you're bonding over that. Some days you're just telling stories and laughing and goofing off. Or you're just, like, it's just a daily check-in. Like, how are you? What are you doing today? Mm-hmm. And, like, laughing with friends before 9 a.m., is a really special thing. Several months ago, Andy and her wife, Robin, left Brooklyn to move to Austin, Texas. And no surprise here, they picked a house close to a park, hoping to insert themselves into the local dog culture, just like they had in Brooklyn. But things are, well, different. We basically get here, we wake up on the first day, and I'm like, all right, let's go, we gotta go to the park. (laughs) And we we walk over there, uh, get there, and um, we were literally the only people there. How'd that make you feel? Just a big hole in my heart. (laughs) Um, I know that, like, it's never going to be the same, right? You're never, you can't recreate what happens in one place in another. Like, situations are different. Um, Mm -hmm. But I guess I just assumed that people would be there. Um, I I just figured that there would be something, someone, even just one other dog. And there were none. And there were none. Andy's new to Austin. She and her wife are still exploring their neighborhood and finding their people. And though they found some great parks and hangouts, nothing's quite matched what they left behind. Andy's dog park in Brooklyn and the culture that grew up around it, it's something of an anomaly. Her experience in Austin, unfortunately, it's far more common. Americans are lonelier than we've ever been. We're living alone, vacationing alone, eating alone, working alone. You're probably listening to this podcast alone. And that has a big impact on how we feel. Part of that is because, like Andy and Austin, many of us lack the places that we need to make community. One study looked at 44 different cities in the U.S. It measured the relationship between the quantity and accessibility of parks and overall well-being in that city. And guess what? Researchers found that the percentage of a community covered by public park 
was actually a really good predictor of how well people in those communities said they felt. We think of our health as something that we personally are responsible for. You know, when we eat right and exercise, we say we're taking care of ourselves. We buy the healthy snacks, we stay away from soda, we go to yoga, we ride our bikes, we walk. And we monitor all of it on our fitness trackers and smartphones. But what if taking care of ourselves is actually part of the problem? What if staying healthy isn't something we can do by ourselves? What if it's something that we actually have to do together? Being together means that we need somewhere to go, like Andy's dog park. So today, we're going in search of those places. Together, of course. I'm Abdul El Sayed, and this is America Dissected. You're probably listening to this podcast on your phone, right? Do something for me. Go ahead and take a look at your screen time tracker, if you've got one. What does it say? Yesterday, mine said five hours. Five hours. That's five hours my ancestors might have been engrossed in a long conversation with a friend, or playing with their kid, or making new kids. Meanwhile, I had my face in my screen, probably rage-tweeting about something Trump said. And don't get me wrong, the things we can do in this virtual world would have seemed like minor miracles to our ancestors. It's pretty incredible how small our technology has made this real world feel. And through social media, through gaming, through message boards, and more, some people have found real, lasting connections on the internet. But it comes with a real cost. We're trading breadth for depth. Because seriously, 280 characters? How meaningful is that communication, really? And Twitter's not a place. You you can't actually be on Twitter. You're just looking at Twitter. IRL relationships are really hard. Perhaps that's why we're so good at avoiding them. And the internet enables that. Can you imagine trying to ghost someone before the internet? We avoid depth because we're afraid of the potential costs, like pain and heartbreak and frustration. This isn't just my opinion. Research about social media use is beginning to show that more social media predicts higher loneliness. One study by researchers at the University of Pittsburgh of nearly 1,800 young adults between 19 and 32 found that going on social media 50 times a week predicted three times the likelihood of feeling socially isolated. And this bears out on our health in deeper ways, as we'll get to. But our virtual places are easy to get to. Real places aren't. And maybe that's the problem. Well, look, I mean, it's certainly easier to engage someone on Twitter, but it's also far less satisfying. And I think the one thing that people around the world are experiencing now is a sense of frustration with the limitations of life on the screen. Professor Eric Kleinenberg is a sociologist at NYU. He studies physical spaces and the impact that they have on our society, our culture, and our health. I think too many of us have become hooked in a way that we ourselves recognize to be unhealthy. And there's a feeling that social life online is, is ultimately saccharine. It's, it's not satisfying. It's not nurturing. And so I think increasingly people are using screens and, and using social media to generate interactions in real life. Kleinenberg's work shows that real physical spaces that catalyze togetherness can actually go so far as to save your life. To understand how, let me take you through an example he wrote about early on in his career. Come with me to Chicago in 1995. From WBBM-TV. Michael Jordan's just announced that he's coming back to the hardcore. TLC just hit the top of the charts with their hit, Waterfalls. R.I.P. Left Eye. And it is super hot. In July of that year, there was a massive heat wave. It hit Chicago and the rest of the Midwest pretty hard. And it lingered. Five days above 100 degrees. An unusually high humidity. The sun, the source of life. 
But in a few terrible days, streaming heat from that blazing sun killed hundreds of helpless people. Here is the latest. At least 457 deaths have been blamed so far on last week's heat wave. Officials of the Federal Centers for Disease Control are meeting to investigate. Heat waves kill, especially older folks, and especially older folks in poorer communities where air conditioning is uncommon. And that year in Chicago, more than 700 people ended up dying during the heat wave. That's more people dying than if three airliners crashed. Kleinenberg, who grew up in Chicago, set out to analyze the likelihood of death during the 1995 heat wave there. And his findings prompted him to write a book called Heat Wave, a social autopsy of disaster in Chicago. What he discovered tells us a lot about how loneliness kills. For one, he found that a disproportionate number of the people who died, died alone. Deaths were particularly common in single-room occupancy units, or SROs. In one community, 16 of the 26 heat-related deaths occurred in an SRO. You know, people hunkered down at home all the time as a survival strategy, and, and during the heat wave, they literally wound up baking in, in their rooms. He also found that a disproportionate number of the people who died lived in low-income, segregated communities. But that wasn't all. The neighborhoods that were really vulnerable were not just poor and segregated, uh, though they were, they were also uh, depleted uh, of social infrastructure. They lacked gathering places where, where people could go and spend time on a routine basis. A lack of social infrastructure, a lack of communal spaces that bring people together, amounted to a greater number of deaths from the heat wave. That finding alone is striking. But what really sealed the deal on the importance of social infrastructure was all in the contrast. There were all these neighborhoods in Chicago that demographically uh, looked like they should have been very vulnerable. They were poor, they were segregated, they had all kinds of problems, but in fact that they proved to be the most resilient and safest places in, in the city, even safer than really affluent areas, precisely because they had such a robust social infrastructure, because they were organized around you know, very accessible public places and people routinely got to know their neighbors so much that during a crisis they knew you know, who was indoors and should have been outdoors and therefore whose door to knock on and how to protect each other. This social cohesion, the willingness for people in a community to cooperate with each other, made a big difference during the heat wave as people were more likely to live and work together and to check in on each other during a crisis. And the social infrastructure in a community, like libraries, community centers, and commercial establishments, encouraged older folks who were most at risk of death to leave their homes. It saved their lives. His work on the Chicago heat wave is what got Eric so interested in studying social infrastructure in the first place, these physical spaces where people can gather. Building social infrastructure is a direct way to improve public health. When you have attractive shared amenities that are accessible, you know, when you have green space in cities, when you have community gardens, when you have parks, when you have playgrounds, uh, you know, when you have libraries, you create conditions in which people get out more, they move around more, they, they, they exercise, they have better access to clean air, and uh, to go back to my core issues about social integration and isolation, you know, people are better connected. You know, I, in Brooklyn, for instance, I, I found this thing called the Library Lanes Bowling League, where they literally have a weekly bowling match, virtual bowling, where older patrons of the library will put on jerseys and go to the basement or rec room and compete against library teams via an Xbox. You know, and what happens is all these old people who have every reason to be home and alone and isolated and lonely instead find themselves 
in the best kind of company they could possibly be in. And the, the kind of smiles, the happiness, the exercise brings a, a level of vitality and health that no other public program is going to generate. So, you know, I simply refuse to say that investing in social infrastructure comes at the expense of, of health and happiness and general well-being. It's precisely what we need to promote those things. Kleinenberg is making a deeper point here. As his research illustrates, and as other studies have also shown us, without social infrastructure, we become socially isolated. And when we become socially isolated, bad things happen to our physical and mental health. Social isolation, we, we now know, is terrifyingly dangerous. It can lead to all variety of, of health problems from heart disease to depression and stress and anxiety or, or worse. The way that social isolation preys on the body and mind, this is the deeper story here. One meta-analysis, a study of studies in the field, found that social isolation predicted a 60 to 70% higher chance of death over the next seven years. But how exactly does social isolation get under the skin, so to speak? Let's break it down. First, a lot of our body's functions are guided by hormones. Not the kind you're thinking of, but the same idea. Hormones orchestrate many different actions across different parts of the body all at once, like a conductor leading an orchestra. For example, Let's say you were to go hiking in the woods and you see a bear. Your adrenal gland would release its fight or flight hormone, adrenaline. Adrenaline would signal your heart to start beating fast and it would signal the rest of your body to move blood from your internal organs to your muscles, preparing you to GTFO. It would also signal your body to start sweating to cool you down in anticipation of what you're about to have to do. The same signal, adrenaline, has many different effects on many different organs, all for the same goal. And it's much the same with other hormones. One of the body's most important hormones is called cortisol. It gets the body ready to respond to stressful situations that happen over a longer period of time. Not like running away from a bear, but potentially going hiking in the woods every day where there are bears. And what science has demonstrated is that social isolation may increase the amount of cortisol in our bodies because being alone is stressful. This has lots of effects on our bodies, but the most important is that it increases the body's inflammatory response. And this response increases the risk of all kinds of diseases, from diabetes to cardiovascular disease to cancer. So social isolation kills because your body basically responds to it like it would a long-term infection. The effects of social isolation are so pronounced that last year, former Prime Minister of the UK, Theresa May, took special notice. In a country of more than 60 million people and in an age where we can instantly connect with friends, relatives and even strangers around the world, Yet more than 9 million of us say that we always or often feel lonely. To combat the problem of social isolation, she proposed a new tool for doctors in tackling the public health crisis, social prescribing. Basically, encouraging doctors to prescribe social activities like cooking classes or walking clubs instead of medication. Building out our social infrastructure fosters the same kind of response, building the antidote to social isolation right into the fabric of our communities. More libraries, parks, and playgrounds, maybe a little less Twitter. That's an America I can get behind. But in a lot of ways, that's the kind of America we used to have. I learned that when I served the city of Detroit as its health commissioner. See, I wanted to bring some of these ideas to improving health in Detroit. If we could build the city's social infrastructure, perhaps we could improve the city's health, I thought. But before charting where we wanted to go, I had to learn where we'd been. And Detroit, it turns out, used to have some incredible social infrastructure. All right, here's the hint. Swimmobile. 
Yep. More on that after the break. Welcome back to America Dissected with Abdul El-Sayed. Let's dive right in. Kids like water. You know, you show them water or a pool, even the little babies, they're going to gravitate to that thing. Uh, and, you know, back in the old days, you know, the fire department used to come out and unscrew the top of the fire hydrant and put one of those little spray jobs on the top of it and the kids would rally around the fire plug. That's Charlie Beckham. He's the grand old man of Detroit city government, served for over 50 years. I've been at the water and sewage department, recreation department, general services department, uh, been the chief operating officer, chief administrative officer, been executive assistant to the mayor. He's held just about every job there is to hold in Detroit city government. He's retired now, but we worked together when I was serving in Detroit. So of all the jobs that you had, which was your favorite and why? Well, you know, I always say this, and that's a good question. Uh, When I was the director of recreation, uh, and of course the, the, you know, recreation, the very definition of it is you you have fun. I mean, it's, you're, you're, you're all about kids. And so how, how could you go wrong? Yep. The parks and rec department made famous by one Leslie Nope. They run the public parks, swimming pools, and rec centers. Like Charlie says, they're basically the Department of Fun. But like Kleinenberg would remind us, they're also a shadow health department. They create the spaces that catalyze the very essence of what it means to make a community, to commune, and to be healthy in body and mind. And over the years in Detroit, they've come up with some crazy ideas. Which brings me to the part you've been waiting for, the swimmobile. First, some context. Detroit is a huge city, like a really huge landmass. You could fit all of Boston, San Francisco, and Manhattan in Detroit and still have room left over, 138 square miles in total. If you want to provide swimming pools for people that are close to where they are, it's really hard to do on a tight budget. Well, one day somebody came with an idea and said, well, let's just take a big tub of water out and let the kids jump around and play in it. And so that was kind of the genesis of the, the swim mobile. You got this huge tub and you attach it to the back of a truck and you haul it out to the middle of of a particular neighborhood or put it in the middle of a park and let the kids go at it and swim. Basically, what they had was a pool on wheels. This was back in the 70s and 80s. Charlie wasn't running the rec department then, but he remembers it well. So do a number of other Detroiters. From what I remember, I remember we got up. It was pretty early in the morning when the truck set up. It was at the corner of my street. It was on Howard and Campbell. Ruby Joe grew up in the southwest neighborhood of Detroit. We went down there, and they started filling the truck from a fire hydrant, if I remember correctly. And I remember they let us, because I couldn't swim at the time. I was so little. They let the littler kids into the swimmobile first while it was filling up. She was six at the time, about to start second grade. And she was going to have to go to a new school that year. She was nervous. She was hoping to make a new friend before her first day at her new school. We met at the Swimmelville, and my mom introduced me to Crystal, her mom and my mom. And then they introduced me to Crystal and told me that Crystal would be going to the same school with me. And after that, our mothers actually got me into the same class as Crystal, and I just stuck with her throughout school after that. And guess what? Ruby and Crystal, they're still friends. There wasn't a whole lot of things that brought the kids in the neighborhood together. I mean, we grew up together, but it was just the ones that were real close that we were close to. But after the Swimmelville came, I do remember it's like our little circle kind of expanded to a few blocks away, rather than just the street or the next street over. That's what great social infrastructure does. It brings people together, creates bonds that will sustain you for years to come, through good and bad. Now, as beloved and weird as it was, the Swimmobile was short-lived in Detroit. 
I mean, there were some problems. The problem is they're, they're unsanitary as hell, Doc. You know, it's just, you know, kids are kids. And so, you know, they're doing things in there a lot more than just swimming. I, I hear that. As a father of a 19-month-old, I, uh, I, I, I both concur <laughs> that, that children love water, and I also concur that sometimes children aren't as responsible with water as they ought to be. So. <laughs> right. I mean, some kids couldn't help it, and others did it intentionally. <laughs> yeah. As a former health official, it's probably a good thing that they shut that crap down. Literally. But the legend of the swimmobile lives on. I mean, the Simpsons even featured one. Bart and Lisa have an encounter with one, get hooked on swimming, and then beg Homer for their own. We both agree that getting our own pool is the only way to go. Now, before you respond, you must understand that your refusal would result in months and months of... Can we have a pool, Dad? Can we have a pool, Dad? Can we have a pool, Homer relents, buys them a pool, and, well... Watch the rest of the episode. But getting a pool of your own kind of defeats the whole purpose. And that's part of the problem. Think back to Andy. Formerly she was in Brooklyn and now in Austin. In Brooklyn, backyards aren't that common. In Austin, almost everybody has one. Often, we use public space when we don't have a private alternative, thinking that the private space, the backyard, is just as good or even better. But we don't realize that the value isn't just the space. It's the people who make that space what it is. If you don't believe me, just ask Andy. This park community became like a family. And I have to say, like, when we decided to move, we did like a weighted pros and cons list. And leaving the park community was was a five, which means it was weighted the, the highest. It was the biggest loss. What's worse is that when we all choose our own privately owned version, we undermine the public versions. So government stops building them. The money we spend on public projects, like the swimmobile, it's falling. Been falling for years. In the 1960s, for example, we spent about 3% of our GDP on public infrastructure. It might not seem like a lot, but it's way more than we spend now. Today, we spend just about four-tenths of a percent. As Kleinenberg reminds us, the era of the public good, something we all share, provided simply for the good of the community, without a profit motive, seems like a thing of the past. We once invested a lot uh, of, of money uh, and put a lot of ideas into building out things like, you know, branch libraries and public parks and transit systems that could be pleasurable for people who are on them. And that era is, is over. Uh, you know, w- the, this concept of the public good, uh, this idea that people in society are better off if, if everyone around them has an opportunity to make something better of themselves. Uh, that has really fallen by the wayside, and, and we've, we're squarely in an era uh, where we care about our, our, our private happiness. You know, it's the, the me, me, me presidency that we're in, and it, unfortunately, it's that era of governance as well. Public goods, like parks, have come under fire in this era of tax breaks for the rich. Trump's 2020 budget, for example, proposed cutting the U.S. National Park Service by $481 million. Libraries, which are funded locally, they're also at risk. Through the course of his research, Kleinenberg found libraries without working bathrooms, without air conditioning, with broken furniture, that aren't even accessible for people with disabilities. But social infrastructure isn't failing everywhere. Like everything in the U.S., it's just vastly unequal. Now, interestingly, many of our most affluent suburbs in the United States, you know, places that we might think don't care about social infrastructure because they're all about uh, private comfort, they actually do invest in things like libraries and athletic fields and schools. Uh, and, and the social infrastructure in these places can be quite glorious. But that's not really something that's shared equally and democratically. 
Charlie experienced this firsthand at Parks and Rec in Detroit. One of the worst assignments I had when I was in recreation is under the Kilpatrick administration. Uh, because of budget constraints, we had to start closing rec centers. And so I literally closed half of the rec centers we had. And I tell you, there's still some people in the neighborhoods that are mad at me today for closing some of those centers, but we didn't have a choice. But, but what it was was people felt their community was dying. Um, you know, we, you know, the city was in, 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 in a tough spot then, Doc. You know, we, were, we just didn't have the money. We were rapidly sliding down um, the, the, the ramp to, to bankruptcy back in those days, and you know, we were trying to stem the tide. In 1950, Detroit was the fifth largest city in the country, 1.8 million residents. By 2010, it had lost 61% of its population, and the economy was a huge driver. Built on the back of the auto industry, Detroit relied on automotive giants like GM and Chrysler. When they moved their factories out of town, they took jobs and people with them. That accelerated white flight to the suburbs. So mostly low-income, black Detroiters, marginalized through racism and racist public policies, were left to fund the municipal government on a far smaller tax base. The city was forced to make deep cuts. For years, the streetlights were just out. In 2012, when the city was facing bankruptcy, they axed their health department, which I was hired to rebuild in 2015. It also meant deep cuts to Parks and Rec. I mean, as an example, uh, a typical rec center costs about $800,000 to $1 million a year for operations and maintenance of it. And that doesn't include uh, upgrading capital. Mm -hmm. When you've got some budget constraints staring you in the face, I mean, you can't have 30 of those around for what may be serving uh, 45 to 50 people a week. But Detroit has since emerged from bankruptcy. And city government is finally beginning to turn the corner. As the city was on the mend, Charlie took a new job, creating the city's new Department of Neighborhoods, affectionately called the Don. It was the Don's job to rebuild that neighborhood network, that social cohesion that had shriveled in all of the city's disruption. Together, they built this idea called the 20-Minute Neighborhood. Where within 20 minutes, you can walk to just about anything and everything you need. You can walk to school, you can walk to church, you can walk to the barbershop, to the beauty salon, to the grocery store. Uh, we're starting to get back to that. And so we're rebuilding walkable neighborhoods all around the city. That idea of a 20-minute neighborhood, a place that's got all the things you'd need in the usual week within 20 minutes walking, that's the kind of community that reinforces itself, keeps people constantly together as they live and work and pray and play. That's the kind of community that fosters good health for its residents. Like Charlie reminds us, government can and must play a role. It can mean life or death in the case of Chicago, and also life or death for countless people struggling with serious diseases we don't always see, like depression or anxiety. We've made huge headway on diseases like cholera and pneumonia that killed people well before their prime in the past. And today, we're finding that the diseases that kill us now, that kill us while we're young, tend to be mental, depression, anxiety, hopelessness that drive drug addiction and suicide. And just like public investments were made to build the infrastructure for clean drinking water and better sanitation in the past, now what we need is public investment in our social infrastructure. The resources that bring us together make us feel a sense of belonging, make us feel, well, human. On the next episode of America Dissected, we'll probe deeper into another public health crisis laid bare by crumbling infrastructure. Something that hits super close to home for me, the Flint water crisis. As an epidemiologist, I know a thing or two about virality. So if you like our show, make sure to share, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes. And tweet or Instagram me at, at Abdul El Sayed, and I'll throw you a repost. 
America Dissected is a production of Crooked Media. Our producers are Austin Fisher, Carrie Jr. II, and Katie Long. Andrea B. Scott is our story editor. Our sound designer is Daniel Ramirez. Production support from Allison Falzetta, Elisa Gutierrez, Kara Hart, Daniel Porcerelli, and Tara Terpstra. Fact-checking by Dr. Nicole Aiello. The theme song is by Take Yasuzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and Mukta Mohan. Special thanks to John Favreau, John Lovett, Tanya Somenader, and Tommy Vitor. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening. If you want to read more of Eric Kleinberg's work on social infrastructure, check out his most recent book, Palaces for the People, How Social Infrastructure Can Help Fight Inequality, Polarization, and the Decline of Civil Life.